0: The following program is paid for by Rudy Wealth Management.
1: Good morning, and welcome to Paul Rudy's On the Money. You're invited to be part of today's show. Call 356-9397. Opinions and views
0: expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station.
2: And now, Paul Rudy's On the Money. Well, good welcome, everybody. This is Paul Rudy's On the Money radio show. glad everybody could join us today. I'm here with uh, certified financial planner professional David Rudy also a retirement income certified planner David thanks for uh, joining us I'm turning up my headphones here
1: yeah thanks for having me
2: and I have a financial advisor Ryan Repko, who also works with me at Rudy Wealth Management my two usuals welcome good and I'm gonna go here to Dr. Fred Dr. Fred are you there I can hear you <laughs> okay that's good uh, lines a little right. staticky we'll try to go with it uh, Okay, it, 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 if it clears up, we'll be fine uh, it, So uh, let me I'm just going on with the uh, prelims here Fred. So let me get through that So as I just put dr. Great. Fred Gertz on the phone Hopefully everybody can hear him loud and clear. I i sure can and uh, you can call in with your questions at three five six nine three nine seven or text us on the castle heating and cooling text line at three five one five three five seven You may also, we also want to welcome those tuning in on Facebook Live. It's important to recognize that past performance is not an indication of future results. You should not make any investment decisions without first consulting your own financial advisor and conducting your own research and due diligence. All common sense stuff. We're here to try to give people's, you know, as I say, not so much the answers. We answer what we can. uh, And and like I said, we do like the, uh, we like people to text us and call us with their questions and we'll answer them the best we can. And, of course, one of our other goals is to provide the right questions so that you can talk to your financial advisor, whomever that might be. So, Fred, uh, looks like everybody's worried now. China has had the slowest growth in, I don't know, I think 10 years. I'm going to look at my notes here. Uh, this, this article said Chinese, China's economy grew at its slowest pace in nearly three decades last year. World's second largest company right. grew to 6.6%. In 2018 now we would kill for six point six percent real GDP growth over here but why is six point six percent when we hear that coming out of China that suddenly got has people concerned
3: well for many years they've at least asserted they're growing at a 10 percent rate which is really fantastic and again if you think about compounding at 10 percent uh, you grow really really rapidly there there's been some question for uh, decades about uh, the uh, uh, authenticity of their their numbers. They may actually be overstating it, and this may be more of a sign to the Chinese that they're not going to be growing as fast. Because I think, in a sense, they start out with a number and then work around to get that number, as opposed to having the number come out of the actual uh, data. So again, I think it's, it's suggesting that uh, the Chinese are getting accustomed or want to get accustomed to a somewhat slower growth rate, which obviously uh, they have to do because a 10% growth rate uh, simply uh, is not likely to continue for a long period of time.
2: And then everybody is concerned, probably related to that, but uh, the World Bank, uh, I think it's the World Bank, lowered their GDP, world GDP, gross domestic product uh, from, I think, three nine originally though not too long ago 3.7 and now down to 3.5% but that sounds to me even though you, we maybe we don't like the trend but f- you know just the absolute number nominal world gdp at 3.5 uh doesn't seem to be something to be alarmed about
3: no that's uh that's very good for the long term again the united states uh is going to very likely hit 3% for uh, 2018 but the suggestion is that uh, it's not going to happen it's not going to continue but we will still have uh, relatively strong growth so again this is a big difference between a recession and uh, a slight slowdown this appears so, so far to be a slight uh, slowdown and again uh there's still lots of uh, strong numbers coming in about jobs and uh employment wages things of that sort so i think people are more wary now a combination of some of these signs and the fact that uh, we're getting close to a 10 year expansion. So again, it's not not a natural that people would uh, worry a little bit, but that's not a sure sign that uh, we're headed for the recession. I think the recession is somewhat more likely than it was a year ago, but uh, certainly uh, uh, not a high probability right now.
2: And I see last week uh, there was all kinds of news coming out of China, at least reportedly, that they've offered maybe a six-year buying spree uh, where they'll increase their uh, goods imports uh, to the U.S., or from the U.S., I should say, during that time by a combined value of more than $1 trillion. So I think, is that, is that, is there some kind of sign maybe? Uh, I don't want, you can't read too much into it, I know that, but that both sides, probably both Donald Trump and the Chinese, are probably at this point saying, look, we, we got to come to terms on this trade stuff and quit bashing each other because you can see China is slowing down and, you know, we got all kinds right. of other issues here uh, with the government shutdown and whatnot. I suspect there's, both of them want to get something done
3: yeah it's very likely true and again uh who knows what it would have been without that it could have been almost the same thing without the agreement so again a lot of these things are a little bit like a, a kabuki dance where they do certain sure. things and you know the what they're headed for and so on uh changing the, the subject slightly sure. i think we, we should have a, a moment of silence uh for uh, john bogle this week because oh. uh he is the uh uh, father of the uh, uh, approach that uh, we buy into pretty pretty
2: strongly. Yeah, and and uh, what Doctor Fred's talking about is basically the index fund was started. Which uh, Dave explained the difference before we go into that, so so that people can understand uh, maybe in the context of forty or fifty years ago when Jack Bogle. Uh, began the first mutual fund and then the, the, and founded basically or started the Vanguard group, which is now a five or six trillion dollar it 's a it 's a mammoth sized money management firm but w- what 's the significance of this passive index style versus active management well, I think if you just look back before index funds existed, pretty much
1: the only option for investors <laughs> was to either try to pick individual stocks on their own or hire a professional to basically pick stocks or time when to get in and out of the market for them. Basically, you know, the thought process was a really smart person should be able to take advantage of any inefficiencies in the market or be able to kind of predict market movements and outperform just someone who took a naive approach and bought and owned the entire market. But what happened is research came out, I think it was in the 60s or early 70s, as basically they got more and more data available to them and, and computing power to kind of analyze this stuff. And what they found is that most of the professional active money managers actually underperformed just the market as a whole. So what happened is a few really smart people said, you know, we should invent some sort of investment vehicle that just matches the returns of the overall market. So instead of trying to pick the best companies or uh, you know jump in and out of the market, we're just going to own basically the entire market. Or I think they started with a Standard and Poor's 500 index fund, which is you know we're just going to own basically the 500 largest companies in the U.S. in their natural market cap weighting, and just deliver that return to investors and it sounds like such a common sense idea today because it's catching on, but at the time it was kind of blasphemous.
2: Fred, you were uh, teaching back then uh, deep into teaching uh, young college kids. Right. Uh, so you can probably give a, a different perspective on this. This was kind of a at the time treated as a strange idea, wasn't it?
3: Well, it, it was, and even uh, uh, John Bogel, the person we're talking about, was the first one to do this, and uh, they had some quotes from early in his career, he talked about uh, managers being able to outperform the market. He came around to the conclusion that uh, that wasn't the case. And again, this is not an in, uh, like a minor sort of development. Some people think it's the biggest development in uh, finance in the last 50 or 100 years. So it's really a major uh, breakthrough. And, and the point is that it opens up uh, investment opportunities to people who don't have the expertise to uh, try to game the market so it opens up to all of us in a way that uh, wasn't available before.
2: Would it be fair to say that he revolutionized investing for just regular people?
3: I, I'm sure he did. Uh, the mutual fund was the first step but the mutual fund still was uh, actively managed and still costly so again it was probably better to have a, a mutual fund than try to do individual stock picking but we still have the problem of uh, uh, that goes with uh, active management, market timing, and uh, fees and things of that sort. So that was this is the next step, converting a mutual fund into an index. The problem now is that people are uh, playing on a, a good thing and creating indexes that probably aren't very valuable. So when you have an index about one part of the economy or another part and suggest people move back and forth, that's not really. Uh, uh, Fulfillment of the kind of Bogle strategy, where you have a broad index and and stick with it.
2: And Bogle, talk uh, one about one sort of the uh, Go ahead.
3: Right. I, I want one aside. Uh, personal aside. Um, I, I moved into passive around 20 years ago, and and one of the stocks I held before that was PG&E, Pacific Gas and Electric. Uh, and you think, well, what could go wrong here? Uh, you have the uh, uh, the fastest growing, rich, one of the richest states in the in the country, you have a utility, uh, what, what could go wrong? Well, the fact is there were two bankruptcies in the last 15 years with that. So the problem, that takes away that problem. Again, you, you avoid those kind of things. You also uh, give up the t- opportunity of hitting the jackpot with Google or something of that sort. But on, on the average, you're going to do better with a, a broad index as opposed to picking individual stocks.
2: Fred, we're going to take a call. Uh, line two with Jeff Jeff are you with us Jeff are you there hi how are you yes sir
0: good hey I'm curious about the math on the S like the S&P 500 index fund so let, let's just say you, you take the largest of the 500 and the smallest of the 500 and then let's say that each of them just for simple math sake um, Each goes up 250% on a single day,
2: okay? Yes.
0: So would then, would the, and and all 498 in the middle stayed exactly the same, would the S&P have increased 1% then that day, or does somehow the highest, biggest uh, company have more of an effect than the smallest
1: Yeah. So the second explanation you provided was correct, I believe. So um, the bigger company is going to have a bigger impact because everything's market cap weighted. So what that means is basically if you take the number of shares outstanding and you multiply that by the value of each share of stock, that's going to give you Uh a value of the market capitalization of that company's stock. If you look at a company like
2: Apple, their market cap is like enormous it's i, I don't it's know almost what the number, a trillion yeah. you know it was it was a, a milestone and i think they hit a trillion dollar market cap and i don't know what right. the 500th largest company would be but my guess is it's much
1: much much smaller than that yeah right. so oh, what yeah, happens way, way smaller, yeah. what happens is apple ends up driving the returns of the standard Poor's 500 and in that index a lot more than the 500th company as an aside <laughs> for the listeners it's kind of interesting. Some people think that that's a problem with market cap weighting and there are things like equal weighted Standard & Poor's 500 index funds which kind of eliminate oh. that issue and they, they weight all of them equally. But that's not the same as an S&P 500 index fund. You have to you know know what you're getting into if you're going into something like that. But just kind of a, a little total tangent
2: tidbit there. Just kind of so, shows you how people if, have to if, tinker. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go yeah. ahead, Jeff.
0: So, and then, uh, d- take that a step farther in the, uh, total, let's say a total stock market index. So really, uh, really the S&P 500 is so, has a weight so much, uh, versus the entire market. You really, I mean, what do you add by going to, a total stock market index well, fund versus the S&P. Not very much,
2: probably. Uh, very little. So uh, I'll give you a technical side and a, just a basic side. Basically, uh, to me, whether you're on the Standard Poor's 500 index or the total U.S. stock market, you are almost identical twins. Not quite. So the uh, total U.S. market fund is going to have a slight effect from some smaller companies, a little more of a value impact perhaps. The difference in expected return is about a quarter of a percent per year. So, oh wow, you, you, uh-huh. you know, I, I if someone, I say flip a coin. I, I don't really get too caught up on whether a person buys the S and P 500 index or the or a Vanguard Total U.S. Stock Market Index. The point is, gotcha. it's there. I think you. I think you. You got it. There. It's hard to tell the difference between the two on any given day or any given year, for that matter. There you go. Okay. okay. Great. Thank you. All right. Sir. Thank you. Jeff.
3: Bye. yeah. Uh, uh, Paul, one aside, uh, the the one period when indexing became problematic was in the international index back in the uh, 80s when Japan became uh, really, really dominant. So you had a case there where, where in in retrospect, you had a bubble in Japan, and that really took over the whole index. That's the only situation I've seen where uh, indexation is uh, really problematic.
2: Right, and in essence, because there's this market-weighting impact Uh, People really don't remember so much, but I remember, and Fred, of course you do, in the mid-80s when Japan was going to take over the world economically and we were all going to work for the Japanese and they were buying all the premier properties in the U.S. And uh, it's kind of a lot of the things we hear about China now, uh, we heard about Japan. And uh, because of that success, that index and being, again, most indices, proper indices, are market cap-weighted. Basically, you own just the... Ja- if you owned an international fund back then, this is what really Fred's getting to, uh, you basically owned, had, had essentially all your money in the Japanese stock market. And it was, in retrospect, it was in a bubble, and still is lower than it was at the late, in the late 80s.
1: Well, and, and I think that's one of the arguments that people will use against pure indexing, uh, especially market cap-weighted indexing. And that's why there are a lot of products coming out to kind of deal with these things and like i said it's you can't necessarily compare the two you have to know what you're getting into but there are people who believe that you know it can reduce risk by you know basically equal equal weighting things or you know one of the things like when i worked at dimensional their emerging market strategy they limit how much any one country can be as a proportion of the overall portfolio and i don't remember the exact percentage but they're not technically following a pure market cap weight, but they're not technically a pure index fund company. Now, whether that's better or worse, you know, I'm sure people can argue one way or another, but I think that is a reason why more and more strategies are coming out that
2: aren't pure market cap weighted index funds. Well, I think that's clearly the case. And then, you know, we, we get that question a lot. Well, what about Japan? You know, it, you know, it seems everybody wants to use that, throw it in the face of buy and hold investing or just pure indexing. And, and again, uh you know that's the story of risk if you put all your money in any one country uh you can diversify that risk and and uh, getting back to john bogle i remember an interview with jason zweig i watched just uh, over the weekend uh, from the wall street journal uh his rules were basically well first is you diversify and after that you diversify and then diversify and then diversify and so that's really when we talk about Japan and the real problems of that index, which is still lower than it was 30 some odd years ago. It's like, that's why you don't put all your money in one country. I don't trust, you know, I, 30%, just as an aside, every one of our clients, to the extent they have money in the global stock market, 30 cents in every dollar roughly is outside the U.S. And people say, why do you do that? I said, I don't trust any country, even my own with a hundred percent of my money. Uh, And it's different. There's lots of other reasons for it, diversification, different opportunity sets, et cetera. But uh, Jack Bogle, clearly, probably, I think you're right, Fred. Uh, In the last 100 years, I can't even go past that. I can't think of anybody that even came remotely close to doing so much good for so many investors in the United States. Basically now, because of him, you can essentially what would have cost you maybe two or three percent a year to be invested in the stock market now you can essentially do it for almost nothing so uh, that's uh, I'm glad you brought that away it's a big deal uh, in 1990 uh, this is it was a big shift for me so now we're going back a long time I Fred made a shift so here I am uh, I started this business in this business in 1984 and uh, by 1990 I was lucky uh, I happened to sit through a presentation with pr- pr- maybe the person second to John Bogle, Gene Fama, and then also Ken French, two of the most you know cited people in academics, uh, and sat through their presentation one time. And I decided right there at that meeting, I'm never going to use active management again, and I'm going to go to pure passive uh, management, which, is, of course, essentially, when we talk about indexing we're talking about uh, we don't need to try to pick stocks or outsmart the market let's just embrace the market let's grab those returns and harness those returns with the least amount of cost and friction and so I've followed Jack Bogle and I've read a lot of his books Uh, and by the way I I can't recommend many books more highly than John Bogle's book uh, common sense on mutual funds as just one of them and um, I can't think of any investors that wouldn't do themselves a favor uh, that, by reading that book. I, I just think uh, it's just a terrific book. So I'm glad you brought it up.
1: You know, one one last kind of interesting fact is I was listening to a podcast and they were talking about Jack Bogle and um, they were saying that the index fund, when it first launched, it was basically a flop. I think it, like a couple of years in, it had like $10 million under <laughs> management or something. And it was just so countercultural. It It took a long time for it to gain traction. And then fast forward to I think it was 2017 or maybe it was even last year a lot of money flowed out of actively managed mutual funds into index funds so it's really really catching fire but they were talking about how still about 70% of the money is actively managed out there and whether that's the exact number or not I don't I think that right. it's more the ratios the general sure. ratios so the majority is still actively managed so so sometimes you'll hear people say well our market's going to become less efficient because index funds are becoming more and more popular and people aren't actually trading on information. And my answer is with 70% of the money still being actively managed, we're probably still pretty far away from that point.
2: Yeah, and and, 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 in in a perfect world, you wouldn't have still 70% or so of the money actively managed because it's it's not a certain loser, but the odds are so poor that you're going to win at that game that it's a complete waste of time in my view. Uh, And of course, there's an enormous mountain of empirical support that suggests that uh, you know, uh, even people that do outperform the stock market, you don't—they don't do it by any more than you would expect by randomness. Uh, So it's just there's
3: a problem. There's a problem we talked about that uh, no one's going to call you on the phone and offer you a a hot deal on an index fund. uh, Almost probably 95, 99 percent of all uh kind of sales pitches are with active management. That doesn't just apply to individuals, it also applies uh in the institutional world. I'm on the surge board and I probably hear uh uh 95 people talking about uh some active strategy and five people talking about maybe an index strategy. So again the the uh profits in terms of being a, a money manager still lie on the side of uh of active management
2: and i think if there's in summary on john bogle if you know the gift he gave to the american investor is uh saved tens if not hundreds of billions of dollars in needless expenses uh, i think he had a saying that said it's the only you only business where you pay for what you don't get <laughs> so <laughs> which would i think makes kind of a lot of sense well last year guys we were going to talk a little bit because it was the first show after the new year's but then we got sidetracked uh, i thought on some pretty good issues so i was happy to do so and i'm always happy to do that but um but coming when we think about new year's resolutions i i came across an article of fidelia i guess has been doing a study for the last 10 years that surveys people about looking at the top resolutions and and these probably are going to you know you know, I guess they're probably financial resolutions, I'm guessing, is, but the number one was save more, number two, pay down debt, and number three was uh, spend less. And Paul Jr. wrote a blog about that and kind of covered that first one, save more. Uh, David, why don't you cover a couple tips for that one? Okay, so I'm
1: gonna throw something in here. I'm reading Paul's notes that's not actually in his post, but I was listening to another podcast the other day where I get a lot of my information, and i really liked what the person said and he said he thinks a lot of saving comes down to clarifying your priorities and i that really clicked with me it's if you prioritize the things that saving will get you so maybe it's paying for your child's college in the future being able to retire or at least reach financial independence so you don't you know you have more flexibility over what you do all of a sudden it becomes a lot easier to control your spending on other things because you've decided that it's worth it to forgo those other things to achieve your your higher priorities in your life. So that's, I think, something that you can do right off the bat is first and foremost, clarify why you're saving. Why is it worth it? Why is it worth it to you to forgo consumption today for future consumption or gifting or whatever the purpose is for? Um, and then beyond that, you know, you have the obvious easy ones, which is the extent possible, automate your savings. So if you can withhold it from your paycheck and put it right in your 401k, that seems to work the best for people. I think most people have heard that advice,
2: but the reason you hear it so often is because it works. And Ryan, what's your take on that? I mean, when you think about saving more, uh, what are your thoughts on that subject? When you see that uh, as the number one resolution, what other ideas do we have about Uh, You know, making that a little more realistic and something you can stick with.
4: Uh, I think it's always it's always the obvious answer. Well, if you need more money, you need to save more. But the reality is in the details, and or the devil is in the details. Is how do you get to that point? You can, as David said, automate it. You can look at your costs as well, so you can look at uh, a different side of the coin. Well, maybe you're in some funds that are maybe more costly than others, and you could switch within your your investment portfolio, your four hundred one k to a fund that offers a significantly lower cost point, you're invested in very similar, if not identical, investments, but you're paying less for them. And so th- those costs that you would ordinarily pay to the the uh, investment firm or to the fund that you're invested in, uh, those stay in your portfolio, get reinvested year after year, and they grow, and, they, and it gives you a higher balance in the end because you're just not paying it out.
2: What, what do your guys go to if someone put there are 401k options out in front of you today and let's just say they're still five or ten years out from retirement uh if you could only pick one and assuming that everything is in there that's available and and, and nowadays most 401ks hopefully have at least some form of passive or index type fund do you have a default if you just had to pick one let's just say uh let's say it's uh just a stock, the stock component of that one. You mean an investment option Yeah, investment choice? option, yeah. Yeah, I
1: usually look for a total stock market index fund. Um, and, and typically I see something in there. Uh, if that's not in there, usually they'll have, almost all of them have some sort of like S&P 500 index fund, and I'll put the money you know in there. Um, I tend to look for international as well. Um, so if they have like an international total market index fund, I'll put some of the money in that as well. Um, and that's, that's about as complicated as it gets. Maybe, maybe a REIT fund, if they have a good one that's reasonable cost. Stuff that people don't know what a REIT fund is, David. Right. So that's a <laughs> real estate investment trust. I'm glad you reminded me. Um, which is just basically publicly traded real estate in the U.S. So instead of going out and buying properties yourself, basically you're investing in real estate companies that are going to do that for you. It's, it's like a mutual fund for real estate.
2: But for the big picture, and we always talk about this um, almost on every show at the end of the day, the biggest contributor to your lifetime investment success, outside of behaving properly, so which by the way is the biggest, but I'm talking about from an investment standpoint. The, the the If not all, the bulk of your lifetime outcome of how much money you end up with and therefore what type of retirement you end up with is how much you invested over your lifetime in stocks versus bonds. If that's the case, uh, is there anything wrong with just defaulting to a Suppose there's a Vanguard Total Stock Market Index or a Fidelity Spartan Stock Market Index. Uh, there's not a lot to fight about after that, is there? No, no. I don't think so. Yeah, I didn't think so either. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, what about the, you mentioned the 401k,
4: Ryan. Uh, do you ever see cases where people don't even pick up the match, oh, the matching contribution? Certainly, and it's, it's maybe you just don't understand the the uh, the full concept of what's going on, but at a minimum, as we tell everybody, if your employer is giving you a match, invest that amount of money for your own side so you at least get the match. You're getting a double up on your investment because your employer is putting in a certain percentage of retirement money for you. And I'll, and some folks don't don't even know that's an option. So just knowing that in itself, you if you contribute, let's say 3% of your paycheck and your employer matches that, now you have a 6% con- contribution rate for the year.
2: Do you ever see people... Uh, that neglect to do that because they read a book or they heard Dave Ramsey or somebody that says pay off your debt first. Yeah, I'm so not knocking Dave Ramsey. I'm just saying people may even get his message wrong. They read. A, let's just leave it with they read an article or a book that said first thing you do is pay off your debt. I, I was actually going to bring that
1: up because we get that question a lot. Is you know I have some extra money essentially. Should I pay down my debt first? Should basically, put extra towards car payments or mortgage payments or school loans, whatever the debt is. Or should I invest that money in my 401k for retirement or invest it for some other purpose? And the answer is usually it's kind of a hierarchy. And I typically say, probably first and foremost, it's hard to say. I have a tough time choosing between paying off credit card debt that's like, right. you know, a 20 plus percent interest rate or getting an employer match. I'd be interested to hear your perspective on that.
2: I always take free money. Yeah.
1: So, um, Typically, my hierarchy would be um, contribute at least enough to your 401k to get the match. And then you can kind of assess uh, what type of debt you have, what the interest rate is, and how that compares to the expected return of the investment portfolio. And also take into account kind of how things feel. So your, your psychological uh, feelings towards having debt.
2: Is it a burden that's hanging over you or is it something you don't mind? I think that's key we we i don't think we talk about attitude enough. some things are purely financial. some things are a blend between financial and how you know your personal uh taste towards debt or towards an, it, towards savings. before we go on to more of these uh because the next one we 're going to talk about is paying down debt a little a little more detail, but it just struck me that. The one, and by the way, there's guys wheeling away uh, ATM machines across the street. I, I assume it's legit. <laughs> now, I know the bank is actually uh, moving their headquarters. But normally when I see a couple of guys walking down the street with an ATM machine on rollers, I worry a little bit. I want to feel like i got to call somebody. But If we case, see some
4: flashing lights in a minute, we'll know I, what's going
2: on. Because of the News Gazette, I happen to know that the, the PNC Bank has moved or is in the process of moving. So I, I'm relieved. But... It kind of like, you know, the dog that didn't bark. What struck me about this Fidelity uh, survey is nowhere in that top three is create a financial plan to begin with. I mean, uh, don't you think that the three, which I said were what? Save save more, more, spend less. Pay down debt and spend less. What do you guys think the odds are if someone's real priority is not create a plan first, then do those things versus... You don't create a plan and do those things. What do you suppose the odds of success, uh, the one that has an actual plan that knows where they're going and why they're doing this? Why am I saving more? Why am I paying down debt? Why am I spending less so that I can do those things? Um, What's your gut feeling about the odds of success for the planner versus the one that doesn't have a plan?
4: I think it probably goes without saying that somebody with the plan is, is likely to have a better odds of success simply because, like David said earlier, they, they have a reason for the money or a reason for what they're doing. And when you put reason behind just a, a menial task of save more, spend less, you have a, a better chance of probably making that goal uh, because you're, you are funding maybe your retirement or your kids' uh, college education. There's now a reason, a, a tangible, meaningful reason to do what you're doing.
1: You know, the other side benefit to this, which goes the exact opposite direction of the New Year's resolutions, is sometimes you hit a point where you don't need to save more and you can actually spend more now and enjoy it. And you may, if you don't have a plan, you may feel obligated. It's just more saving is always better and less spending is always better. And it's like, well, that's not necessarily true. I mean, if that's going to lead to you having way more money than you need to live on way down the road and you're sacrificing things that you really enjoy today, maybe that's not the right trade-off to make. If you look at um, life cycle finance, the whole idea behind it is you want to try to smooth out consumption over your life. So basically when things are good, you want to kind of save up for a rainy day. And if you're at a lower income point now, maybe you do things, you know, it's kind of the idea behind a mortgage. It's like it allows you to live in a house now that technically you couldn't pay cash for. Um, that's that's the whole idea is is balancing things out you don't want to be a total miser now and then end up with millions of dollars later and you also don't want to do the opposite where you <laughs> you know so I think there's a balancing act, and sometimes having that plan can allow you to spend guilt free instead of feeling bad about it
2: you and that and 's kind of an interesting concept because uh I was in a Wall Street journal article some time ago um, and it was called Permission to Spend and it was a result of a phone call i got from a reporter said hey we heard you might have some thoughts on this and i said well in the story the original story was going to be about how difficult it is for retirees uh to get by and i said oh i'm the wrong person for that story I, the biggest problem i have with my clients is getting them to actually spend what i tell them they can spend uh which is, which is in- interesting and that really is that trade-off that we talk with our clients a lot about and that is look We never want to take on uncertainty. We don't need to get everything we we want to get before, you know, by the time we get to heaven, we want to look back and do everything on planet earth that we wanted to do. Uh, On the other hand, we don't want to live in a way that we're needlessly sacrificing that one life we get. And that's really what you're talking about. There are trade-offs, but without a plan, you're not going to know whether you're over I mean, it sounds strange. I'm oversaving, right? I mean, because everything we're, we have beaten into our heads is you can never save em- enough. You can never save enough. And sometimes you can save more than you need to save because if it's not buying you something down the road that you want, then you can stop. And uh, I think it comes down to what you're sacrificing
1: now. If you're sacrificing things that really don't bring much to your happiness, then I say, yeah, go for it. That's fine. But if you're sacrificing things that bring you a lot of happiness in your life, Daniel talks about, you know, he owns a boat and it's a relatively expensive payment. But to him that's one of the biggest sources of happiness in his life is being able to go out and go fishing on a regular basis and that boat allows him to do that. For him, it's worth spending money on that today, even if it costs him a little bit in the future. Um for other people that wouldn't be the case, but I think a lot of it does come down to what are you cutting out of your life? If you're cutting things out of your life that are are huge sources of happiness then I think you need to reassess because you also need to take into account
2: the fact that you're not guaranteed to live till you're sixty when you plan on retiring but isn't the one of the key assets of a plan is you you know you can price what you're doing in other words, Daniel because he's a financial planner uh, he actually can calculate the cost of that and so it, it, until you understand the cost in real life terms you, you know until you price that. It's really impossible to make an intelligent decision. Mm-hmm. Um, I talk about that a lot with clients. I said, well, we just price decisions. Uh, in other words, well, if I work two more years, uh, should I work two more years? Well, here's, I'm going to price it. Here's the extra. You get another $200 a month for life if you retire two years later than we're talking about. And only that client can, un- it, it can value whether it, that's worth it, in other words, or well, what if I cut my savings by a few percentage points? I'm going to price that. And so you put them right side scenario right one beside the other or maybe there's two or three and you say look all we're doing is pricing decisions does it bring more into your life as far as assets and in lifestyle or what's it costing you to save less or to uh n- to to not pay down debt uh, all those decisions we make or or even the asset allocation decision well I'm a conservative investor and I really want to just I want income so therefore I want bonds we don't sit around arguing and tell them that's irrational it probably is irrational for most people but the easiest way to do it is just to price it say well you are going to be able to spend five thousand a month with a balanced portfolio but if you want to go your investment strategy here it is a hundred percent fixed income which are things like CDs, savings accounts uh, maybe investment grade bonds etc Uh your lifestyle under that scenario is uh three thousand a month I don't think I'm exaggerating that much difference between those two strategies. And, and so, but that all circles back to without a planning, a process. And a planning, a financial plan is not an event. It's not a one-time event that takes place. It's a lifetime process, and it's that feedback loop. Well, because remember, we all get curveballs, right? Well, I have this curveball, or I, I'm thinking about doing this. How does that change the plan? What the client's really asking is, price it for me. Mm-hmm. I don't know if that makes sense to you guys.
4: And and I think it's funny. We, we, we talk so much about building a plan and, and one person we follow said, as soon as you've written that plan, it's almost become irrelevant. And that's the point that you're making that planning is not an event, a one time set it and forget it type of deal. It's evolving. It's constantly adjusting and, and responding to stimulus. That could be anything that happens in your life, like those curveballs
2: and And that's, and and you guys, David, you've been with me. This is our fifth year together. Ryan, you've been with me a couple of years yet uh, now. Uh, can you think of many client meetings over those years where with, with every one of them, there wasn't some kind of detour or curveball, as we call them, uh, to their plan? Oh, yeah. Even stuff that's not like problematic, but
1: it's, oh, I want to spend $50,000 to renovate my kitchen. You know, there's high class. They're not problems. They're just things that initially they didn't have on their, in their plan as a goal. And then things pop up because, you know, your tastes and preferences change or things pop up that you want to do. And then you 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 know you look at those things as they arise,
2: and there's no way that you can anticipate everything for the next thirty years right now. And, and with a backdrop of a plan, and I know we, we probably to listeners it seems like, well, okay, we get it. Yeah. Hey, do you guys think plant? As, as you smart aleck <laughs> kids would say to me after I repeat repeat things enough, you'd say, Hey, Dad, uh, is planning important? <laughs> I, I'm starting to think it is, but you can come to much quicker conclusions if you're in this lifetime planning process. And in fact, before you go rerun the plan, do you guys have a pretty decent idea of like, oh, an extra 50000 to do the kitchen that we really hadn't planned, and you've been with me a few years? Isn't it, <laughs> because you kind of have a pretty good sense of where their plan is at any one time yeah. as to whether you can smile or go, ooh, I'm not quite sure on that one.
4: Certainly, especially as somebody who's got maybe 20 or 30 more years in their in their plan that Yeah, probably a $50,000 increment now is not going to be as big of a deal as somebody maybe late in their years. Maybe they've got five or 10 years left in their plan. There's going to be more of a significant event to pull out that kind of money. So you you have a gut check and you you kind of have your internal barometer that says, you know, that won't affect the plan much, if at any. And if it does, again, like you said, you can price it. You say this. Changes your lifestyle five hundred or a thousand dollars over a course of an entire year is that worth it for you?
2: Right, and and when we talk about fifty thousand, some people might hear that and go, "Wow, that's you know these people must." I have just a gazillion made dollars. up. Another. I know you did. That's what point I want to make is it's it's all relative. Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's ten thousand, fifty thousand, or a hundred, uh, we have always a sense. I guess a relative sense for a client that has two million dollars with us. Yeah, uh, right. What a fifty thousand dollars surprise means versus a client that has a half a million with us. What a ten or a fifteen thousand dollars. And, and the fact is, pretty much every plan—is it safe to say, guys—has enough because we're pretty conservative on the front end of a plan. Uh, that there's room for that curveball, isn't there? Yeah, Usually, and and if it really is a
1: curveball where you you don't have an option, it's right. not just like an optional thing. Then it is what it is, and you make the adjustment going forward, and maybe that's. You get to spend less each month for the rest of your life because of this thing right but at least you know what the new number is and you know that you can you know otherwise you run to these horrible worst case scenarios in your mind and i think people get unnecessarily distraught and sometimes if you just look at the numbers it's like yeah obviously this isn't ideal but we can cut back our spending five hundred dollars a month or three hundred you know whatever the number is we can we can make that cut for the rest of our life and if that gets us through this horrible time that we're going through right now then
2: so be it isn't that even a sense when we get a stock market decline of 15 or 20 percent uh you can pretty much intuitively calculate in your brain whether uh this is maybe a slight issue or it's not and that's really the backdrop of of planning and and and, and that's the benefit if in your guys experience uh, in your words so you have a client they've been with you two or three or four years, uh, nothing, you know, crazy has happened. Uh, you know, no financial collapse or panic. Uh, what would you say people with a plan, the most common, um, benefit to that person? If, if they, if they gave it to you in words, what would they, what would they tend to say?
4: I think probably they'd say that they just worry less because they know that, We've kind of already thought about the what-ifs and, and if the market goes down or what if I have that surprise curveball. We know that the plan is already in place and it can support those kinds of things that it gets thrown at. And they don't have to worry so much about doing this on their own or am I making the right adjustments? Did I, did I over-adjust and am I saving too much now that I could have been spending on just day-to-day living? They have the ability to just quickly say, Paul, Ryan, David, is this going to be okay? And I think that's the question most people are asking is, am I going to be okay? Speaking of worry, can I change
1: gears a little bit and throw in one of my own New Year's resolutions? Um, So one thing that I think would be really helpful for people who are especially prone to worrying, and I think this especially applies to retirees who are relying on their investment portfolio to fund a portion of their lifestyle. Maybe two-thirds of their lifestyle. My recommended resolution would be turn off CNBC or stop watching the financial news and check your account balances less frequently. Because I found those two things really, really help people. And I think it's just natural, if you're watching CNBC and you're seeing, they're giving you a hundred different reasons to be scared every single day. Some of them are gonna hit home and you're gonna be stressed out. And I've just noticed the the clients who don't watch that stuff or watch it a lot less and who check their about account balances less frequently, just don't want So I think that's a really,
2: valuable potential new year's resolution for the the worry warts out there but isn't the isn't that hard on retirees i guess easier said than done i'm going to put it that way uh you've gone from 30 or 40 years of working having a paycheck Um, not only that uh you're putting money if you hopefully uh, in some type of company savings plans typically a 401k plan that's a different dynamic Uh, uh, you know I, i don't think those people that actively work uh, think as much about it and watch it as much. But it seems like the minute people retire, it's a completely different world, right? Uh, no more paycheck. And instead of adding money to our 401k, we're actually potentially decumulating some of our money, spending some of our asset down, which I think is healthy. Uh, some people don't think that way. But in reality, if you want to have the best life you have, you got to plan on spending some of that money uh, to support that lifestyle. It's easier said than done isn't it
1: oh i think so and i think the natural temptation is to watch the news and well also you have more time in retirement to watch the news but check your account balance so that you can see how you're doing but i just have, i know from experience and from talking to clients that that always backfires because every little blip you're going to see and you're going to be worried about it and i do think the kind of getting back to the plan and, and being a broken record again I think you need to have a plan in place that basically is designed to work, even if returns are really bad, to allow you the peace of mind to know, I'm going to be okay. I don't need to check my account balances frequently.
2: And you guys, before the show, were talking about some survey or study or something that maybe it was in Daniel's blog that said that retirees, the average retiree watches 50 hours of TV uh, per week.
4: And I I couldn't believe it. I just was shocked. I read it and I thought, that's got to be a typo. And and there's probably
2: all kinds of statistical things about that where you could go, well, that's not really that useful of a, but But even if it's a, a pretty good segment of retirees, um, look, most news is not good news, right? Mm-hmm. Good right. news e- doesn't
1: sell. Even financial news, like excluding financial news, just watch any news channel, it's like 99% negative stuff. You're gonna think the world's coming to an end and you're gonna be worried about your investment portfolio. I just, I personally think people just shouldn't watch
2: the news at all for like the first year of retirement at least. (laughs) And you know my feeling on that. I think the financial uh, media's mission is to, is very deliberate. I think it's to extract our long-term historical, lifetime historical perspective. uh, Because if we have a proper lifetime historical backdrop or perspective, then that apocalypse du jour that they're one of the crises of the day all of a sudden the mature adult says oh i i've seen this movie 50 times in my life i know how it ends they're trying to get me excited but if they can extract that long-term historical perspective then all you have left is plan b which is chaos which is basically akin to saying look this thing can bust at the seams wide open at any time so watch our show (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <laughs> yeah yeah so watch our show because here's what to do next I always felt like the four most dangerous words in investing was by John Demple- John Templeton well, as he said was this time it's different Uh probably the lighter version of that on the every time CNBC has their which usually marks a market bottom uh, markets in turmoil special Uh you know the next four words are what to do next Um and I think what we spend you know, when we talk about mistake proofing which is part of the planning process is trying to eliminate the common mistakes that investors make but probably the most valuable uh six words that we use all the time i wrote about this in our newsletter recently was you don't want to do that you don't want to do that uh well hey I, paul i'm thinking about actually using my mar account for margin and i'm i'm kind of excited the returns have been so good that I'm going to borrow money and invest in the stock market. You don't want to do that. Or, wow, you know, the stock market's down, parenthetically, a perfectly normal 14% decline, intra-year decline, which we have almost every year, close parenthesis. I'm thinking, I'm kind of scared, and I'm thinking we ought to move some money out of the stock market right now and into the bond market. You don't want to do that. And I think that's... I think the planning process supports that those six words. If we can get those six words out to our clients, and have them act instead of react, you get a much better lifetime outcome. I, you know, I, that's that's my life experience anyway.
4: And, and I think, as you wrote about in your recent newsletter, the the best thing an advisor can do is to intervene between what a what a client or an investor wants to do and what they actually do. And I think you said that best in your article or your your newsletter. It's just. Your job is to be there to make sure that they don't do those things that can derail them for maybe the next five or the rest of the years of their retirement.
2: But it takes a pretty incredible level of trust on the client standpoint. I mean, I talk about these pivotal moments to clients on the front end of a relationship. There'll be these pivotal moments when sometimes you're gonna have to do what I say just because I say so. Uh, That probably sounds snarky or immature or silly, but literally, that could be the difference. Uh, depending on who they're gonna listen to I'll tell them look you can listen to everybody else and everything else to tell you what to do or you can listen to me I can tell you there'll be a quite a different outcome between one and the other whichever path you take on that and it's your life you can do what you want uh, one of those decisions is going to lead to eternal financial sadness and the other ones probably going to give you a pretty good shot at a reasonable outcome uh, and, and I'm really serious about that in this idea of a pivotal moment and one of the greatest values an advi- a, a, a real advisor brings to your life is you don't want to do that. And be willing to say that. Look you in the eye and say, and if you do do that, tell me where to transfer your account. Because I'm not going to be part of a really bad, what I think will be one of the worst financial decisions you make in your life. And when they see you're not bluffing, uh, I really haven't had anybody. You know, they always fold. Uh, but then again, my views on this. Are one that we're in. A, we're in a job, in a career, that basically we have people's livelihoods in our hands. I mean, that's 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 what we have in our hands. And if you're going to take on that responsibility, and, and that's as mom said, guys. Uh, when she when somebody asked her, "What do you think your husband and kids do?" Uh, her her words were, "Well, I think they take on a huge responsibility for people. Uh, we do have a huge responsibility. That's why we take this so seriously." And that's probably why today's show, I guess everybody's going to say, hey, financial plans are pretty important to you guys, aren't they? <laughs> uh, they are. Uh, but that's because I've had 35 years of doing this. I know there's two paths. One is eternal sadness. You don't have a shot. The other is you have a pretty good shot at a pretty good life. Well, Dr. Fred, I'm sorry. We kind of we dominated the last <laughs> 30 or so minutes. Uh, any, any, any final thoughts in about the next 10 seconds?
3: No, I was just listening. It sounded good. Okay.
2: Thanks, Fred. Uh, we'll catch you here next time. And, guys, thanks for listening, for On the Money, for everybody out there. Thanks, Ed Bond. Join us for
1: the second and fourth Tuesday of each month for Paul Rudy's On the Money. Views expressed represent those of the guests and do not necessarily represent those of the station.
0: This is News Talk 1400, WDWS, Champaign-Urbana.